In the Shadow of the Ratliff Hotel by Dean Peterson Chapter 2 The next morning Carson opened his eyes to a new noise. It sounded like sand or birdshot or something minute being flicked against the window pane. He rolled over and saw hard little balls of ice bouncing like rice in a sieve against the old plate glass. The wind surged like the hissing breath of a monster and blasted the frozen pellets against the pane. He sat up and looked out the window. By his last guess, it was a couple days shy of the 4th of July, and the entire ground was coated in droppings of tiny hail. They spread out across what passed for his yard beyond the wrought iron fence, and then all over the steep mountainsides, as if winter had come early. Carson shivered and ran in wool socks over the hardwood floor, rummaging in a dresser drawer. He found the watch he had discarded. It was June 28th. Either the watch was wrong, and he had slept like a fairy tale creature until the winter, or the old town was proving it would have any weather it wanted, any time of year. For a moment, either scenario seemed just as possible. He ran his fingers over his whiskers pensively, and then went downstairs to take a place at the breakfast nook, and marvel at the ice BBs falling like a veil from the sky. For the first time in days, he actually made it a point to cook some real food. Pouring out batter on a hot oily griddle, he ate pancakes with peanut butter and Nutella. He spent a long time standing at the window sipping coffee from a mug in his sweats and hoodie, watching the summer storm and its mean little balls of hail turn to soft, wet little flecks of snow. It was the most beautiful thing he had seen in a long time. Given what had happened lately, forgetting to eat, forgetting to shave, forgetting the time of day and the days of the week, he wondered if he had found his own white-shrouded Mecca, a place to forget and put aside all that had happened a baptism of ice and cold that whispered a promise of something new to wash away the sins of somewhere hot and full of sand and dust. He took a deep breath over the steam of his coffee and then let the awful snapshots flash in his mind, just to test if they were still there, the horrible pictures he saw asleep and awake whether he wanted to or not, the puddle of blood oozing into the filthy grout of a shower stall and going down the drain in a house they had searched, the bloated green thing in the dust of the road they smelled as they walked by on patrol, it looked like a hovel of trash until he saw the hare and the dog gnawing at its eyes. The worst memory clotted him next, the one he didn't want to let in, even up here in this mountain citadel divorced from reality. It sparked and flashed on the periphery of his brain all the time. Standing in the cold of the room, he wondered if maybe up here it wouldn't be so bad, and as he did, it slipped through and began to play through his brain. The stinking slick blood when he threw his only friend into the back of a Humvee and jerked the black nylon of the tourniquet onto his leg, twisting the little plastic tightener over and over again as the uniform fabric of his trousers crumpled under its grip. The fifty cal above them erupted into a series of thumps at the incoming rounds. He slapped on the top of the kid's helmet. Breathe! Carson remembered that feeling of being told he'd made the wrong decision, and what that cost Grady and everyone else in the platoon. He opened his eyes and felt tears begin to run down his cheeks. The snowstorm continued to cascade from the sky in a tumbling white blanket. He wished he could just bury himself in it. The horrible guilt and shame and paranoid fear that was part of who he was now, or had been until he escaped to the mountains. After the memories were done with him, his eyes came back into focus on the shaking puddle of coffee in his mug. He felt exhausted and sick, but even he had to admit he didn't feel as bad as he usually did. Maybe the cosmic reception from that awful nightmare place was blocked out a bit up here by the high peaks and walls of trees. He frowned and bit his lip, and then pulled off another thin strip of dry skin. He took a sip from his cup and groped for something else to think about. What did he have to document next? There was no way he would be able to get the crisp clinical shots the bosses would want of structures with a snowstorm going. He did not want to stay in the house, though, and be forced back into those memories again. 
He stared out at the flying flakes and watched their cinematic coating of the shacky businesses on Main Street down below. For the first time in a long time, he wanted to take a picture. A real one. Not the kind he was hired to take, but the kind he had learned to take at the art academy. The kind he had taken before his CF card became a clutter of blood and burned out oily spots. He set the coffee cup down and walked back up the creaking steps to his tiny bedroom. He sat straight-backed on the edge of the bed and waited, as if testing the ether for a sign that it was okay. It was right below him. He could almost feel it reaching out to touch the calloused skin of his heels. He could see it in his mind's eye under the mattress. The only thing that stopped him from touching it and smelling it and feeling it kiss all the old familiar places on his palms were the three or four inches of space between its box and himself. He looked up at the swirling snow blowing and spinning in many cyclones out his window. It was innocuous and pure and clean. Maybe it would be safe. Wasn't that what they had said at the VA? When you felt ready to try to do normal things, even if it reminded you of bad things? He slid off the bed to his knee, and then pulled the black plastic case to himself along the wood and square nails of the floor. He rested his index fingers on the latches that held the box shut, and inhaled. What if it forced him to bathe in the worst parts of his psyche all over again? He closed his eyes and thought of the white storm raging outside, then flipped the case's latches up with their familiar click in the cold, quiet room. The Nikon stared back at him. The memory-laden stink of a familiar smell swelled into his nostrils. Cordite. For a moment, in the horrible cacophony of noise of choppers and machine guns and crying women and crying babies and the unrelenting smell of animal waste and burned gunpowder almost overtook him and launched him back to that horrible place again. He exhaled and watched the snow fall for a while through the bedroom window, then finally picked up the camera. It slid into all the familiar sweet spots on his hands that he knew it would, and that felt so good, like running to the embrace of an on-again, off-again girlfriend you knew you should leave alone, but she felt so good to you when other options hadn't worked out. He stood and held the camera in his palms, and then slid its sweat-stained, dirty nylon strap over his neck, the old familiar serpent. In a place like this, was it possible, a place where it snowed in summer, to pick up and move on from where he had left off? To go back in time and once again be the naive kid snapping photos of a seemingly peaceful Iraq, almost an exchange student more than a killer. Even the commander-in-chief had confirmed they had beaten the opposition into democracy, and so far, Carson's unit hadn't even fired a shot or seen any violence. It had started with a ripple, a rock thrown by some kid at their Humvee, then a wave of rumors and truths of IEDs and snipers. Then a tsunami of blood and gunfire overrode the mists and nostalgia of war that had engulfed him. Carson's bucolic pictures of date palms silhouetted in the sun with canals forming lead-in lines and smiling kids giving thumbs up gave way to hunched figures moving along walls with shocked expressions and rifles ready, glinting brass shell casings and blood mixing in the sun-baked clay, things on fire, all burned into a hard drive locked away in an old place where he couldn't bring himself to look at them but couldn't destroy them either. Some of the last casualties he snapped any pictures of before stopping photography were of his friends. Kids that once wore skinny jeans and went to clubs off post in Vicenza now stared off into space behind gaunt, slack masks of sunburned skin in a violent and biblical land. There was no more joking, no more talking, just a shared expression in those red-rimmed eyes that something big had happened to all of them that they had never anticipated. They only had energy left to shoot, or yell, or sprint across an open space, or occasionally hold up a middle finger at the lens Carson pointed at them. 
taking pictures was something he did with less and less frequency, until he stopped completely, and then he carried only ammunition and nightmares, and a desperate need to hurt, maim, or kill whatever lay in wait for him. He felt the chill of the tiny bedroom in the Wind River Mountains prickling his skin. His eyes had closed, partially to stop the swell of new tears, and partially because of what he might see when he opened them. He had closed his eyes rarely in Iraq, but when he did, he always hoped he would open them and be somewhere else. The beach, a mall, or with his dog on the lake, or with one of the deceased brought back to life. If he wanted it bad enough, maybe it would happen. Maybe some magic might befall him and say, Thank you for your service. Then grant him a reprieve to somewhere else in the world where people weren't killing each other. Then reluctantly he'd raise his eyelids and see the burning orb in the sky bleaching everything white and smell the stink of diesel and excrement and know that the next unholy mess to fight through could start at any minute in the flash of a muzzle or triggering of an IED. He sighed and opened his eyes, expecting to feel the hot sun burning on his cheeks and the old familiar nasty of his weapon at hand. Instead, he was greeted with a supernova of a thousand luminescent flakes falling outside his window. No burning unholy heat. It was all erased and replaced with the most beautiful blank white sheet of snow falling on the pines and rooftops outside. Carson dressed and then went outside into a new world that fell from the skies. He marveled at the gray footprints that appeared behind his boots in the falling snow, and he felt a familiar lightness a forgotten near childish giddiness like the first time he had seen snow on a ski trip to Utah. He dropped to a knee and raised his camera to his face, feeling the old familiar reflexes of the photographer he had once been. He took a shot of the snow falling onto the hillsides of the narrow canyon where the town's structures poked out amid the sagebrush. He slid to the ground cross-legged as he tightened his aperture and slowed his shutter speed. He braced his elbows on his knees and pushed his face against the camera, trying to form the most stable anatomical tripod possible. Then, as slowly and as deftly as he could, he began to sink his index finger onto the camera's button, trying not to shake it. He was hoping to capture the movement of the white flakes as they slid from the clouds, let them blur and streak across the camera's light-sensitive chip like a million shooting stars leaving white lines, like the blurs of stars in hyperspace at warp speed. He heard the shutter click, and then inhaled, letting the camera drop from its familiar spot on his face. The shutter sound tried to call Carson back to that old hot place again, but he shook it off, and didn't even give a thought to the other awful images that he had once caught on this camera in his hands. He rocked onto his back and closed his eyes for a while, letting the cold, falling sky kiss his face, until he felt the frigid chill of the cold dirt beneath him radiate into his back and skull. Carson stood up, making his way down the hill to Main Street, most of the intact buildings, the ones that still had their roofs and windows and doors, were unlooted and unbroken, huddled like staggering drunks along the narrow gravel road that ran through town. An old saloon, a hotel, a cafe, butcher, general store, barber, then several other buildings of indeterminate use. He crossed the creek and marveled at how the skiff of snow on the boards of the tiny bridge canceled out the unpleasant clompings of his feet in the quiet. It was like the whole world had turned its sound off. No birds, no cicadas, no wind. Just the silent shelling of a million little particles crashing to the earth. He marveled in the dreamlike silence of the whole world acting in so much falling motion without making a sound. Carson walked past the old butcher shop where in the gray light he could still see the butcher block standing sentinel along the wall. He did his best to photograph the silhouettes of a wicked hatchet-faced blade and its jagged tooth friend still hanging from nails in the window frame. He walked silently along the boardwalk to the saloon 
and blinked at his reflection in the glass of the big windows, gaunt and bearded like a red-eyed skinny hippie or exhausted lumberjack. He raised the camera to his chest and snapped off a shot of his own reflection. Blocking the glare with his hand, he peered inside to pay a customary oogling to the big-hipped gal in the painting over the bar. No airbrushing or digital erasing around her thighs. She was rounded and big, like the Renaissance women he had seen in the Uffizi when he was stationed in Italy. This unabashed woman was Carson's only chance at a girlfriend in over forty miles. He smiled at her as he started to turn away, and then he saw them. The pointed legs of bar stools, all of them, about a dozen placed upside down on the card tables. He frowned and compared what he was seeing to past memories of this bar. They were up last time, he thought to himself, though he wasn't sure that was true. He glanced again through the window at the sawdust on the floor of the room. No footprints, no dragged lines of disturbance. He glanced at the modern stainless steel hasp someone had attached to the door years ago and gave an arbitrary jiggle of the thick master lock on it. He was pretty sure the chairs weren't up before. But as he turned away, he did his best to shrug off the truth that was doing its best to bob to the surface of his conscious thoughts. He stepped off the boardwalk, now feeling the chill of the snow that spiraled in many tornadoes and tumbling whirlpools down the street. Right when the wind found an exposed spot between his scalp and hoodie and sent a chill over his skin, he saw something more off-putting than the bar stools. An unnatural straight line, a connected dots that went right across Main Street, and over the sidewalk in front of him. He blinked at them for a moment in the falling snow, the heel, five toes, left, right, left, stretching out on a line in front of him. Someone he had not seen had crossed the street in the falling snow, and traipsed right past him, and disappeared into the alley between the saloon and barber shop. someone barefoot in the middle of a snowstorm in the Wind River Mountains. Carson felt his right palm circling around something long remembered that often reached for high-impact plastic grip of his M4 carbine. The security blanket he carried for thirteen months in the awful heat. The barking, fire-spitting Machina della Morte that sprayed anger and death on any threat he encountered until there was silence and he was safe to listen to the sound of his own labored breathing again. He would have given anything for it to be hanging from its sling over his shoulder and not locked somewhere in the armory back in Vicenza, Italy. His flesh puckered as he caught vague mental flashes of some creature of the night lumbering barefoot through the snow with a twitch and chronic obscene mumble. Yellow toenails broken or cut square at the tip, crouching in the sagebrush, this monster would watch you behind his ropes of oily black shoulder-length hair that almost obscured his dilated pupils. Carson had overheard the townies and Lander down below the mountain complaining about the rainbow people a loose conglomeration of hippies and potheads and love-beaded relics. Every summer they descended on some secluded place to beat drums and play music and lose themselves in a psychedelic time machine that hadn't really worked since the Nixon administration. There were tales of them turning a local car wash into a shower-slash-orgy. Drifters of a more malevolent nature were rumored to be drawn to the rainbow people. Perhaps a lone wolf who couldn't be part of the regular pack a propensity to opportunistic violence after breaking parole a remnant of a latter-day Manson family that emerged from the trees, gaunt on drugs, and with no origin or destination. Now one was in Carson's backyard. Carson didn't like the idea of the barefoot man roaming in the hollows between the buildings. Officially, he was supposed to protect the property from trespassers and vandalism, but really, he just didn't want this barefoot creature coming up behind him when he wasn't paying attention. His palm and fingers curled instinctively again around the imaginary grip of that long-ago locked-away weapon. The tracks were starting to fill with snow even as Carson blinked at them stupidly. 
He was no Jim Bridger, but even he knew if the tracks were filling already, then whoever made them had passed by just now. He looked over his shoulder for a moment, wishing he had a battle buddy to watch his back. He hustled near the mouth of the alley where the tracks led. He crouched and took a deep breath before carefully inching an eye past the edge of the building and scanning the narrow space between the structures. No shady figure with dreadlocks and a rucksack. No sleeping form in a huddle of blankets with protruding dirty bare feet. As his pulse began to rise and his muscles tensed, he shot past the mouth of the alley. He hung a right off the boardwalk and went along the side of the barber's place. An old memory flashed as he neared the back of the barber shop. A spark of thought about how after he finished basic training, he would graduate a superman, with skill and violence and hidden knowledge afforded only to the military. Instead, he learned just how little anyone had learned. He went to Iraq not with trained Ubermenschen or gun-toting Bruce Lees, but with kids, skinny and young. Not heroes or dignified warriors full of reaction, but young denizens of the Xbox generation, ripped apart by flaring hot bits of copper and whining rounds of jacketed 7.62 ammo. The old familiar battle rattle was gripping at him like the clinch of body armor. He felt all the familiar nervous memories as he surged past the back corner of the barber shop and was relieved when he saw no one in the open snow-covered field behind the business district. He spring-toed back to the end of the alley where the tracks had disappeared. They led up the hill to the forlorn little schoolhouse in the snowy distance on the slope of the mountain. Carson surged forward and chased the tracks up the slope, feeling his heart thumping as they kicked over the thin snow and uneven ground. The mantle of familiar insanity that had been almost quiet since his arrival to the mountains was slipping right back over him. I'm going to find this clown and run him off, and then I'll be okay again. Just me in the snow, and... He wanted to say them, but stumbled in his train of thought, unsure who them was. Sprinting towards the distant schoolhouse, his eyes burned through the falling flakes for any sign of movement in its windows. Every part of him was ready to see the darting shadow of a body behind the glass. Maybe he's already gone, Carson thought hopefully. Though he knew he would have to check it out just the same, and do it weaponless. He was starting to slip on the snow that was filling the thin ribbon of path up to the schoolhouse. The sage was collecting snow like cotton as the falling white thickened on the hillside. He pictured a scraggly, disheveled creature massaging the red soles of his feet in some corner of the school building, trying to take shelter from the snow. It almost made Carson wonder if he should wait to evict him. Could he give him his old jogging shoes before sending him packing? The snow on the path to the schoolhouse turned virgin white. The tracks had stopped, and Carson slid to a stop as well. He shot a glance up ahead, and then began to scan the powdered sugar skiff of snow on either side of the trail. No marks. Nothing. It was as smooth as the powder on a donut. A chill ran through his body, and he glared up through the veil of falling sky for the hazy figure of a bearded knapsacked man blinking at him through the storm. All he saw was the falling white and the bare mountainsides. He widened his search, desperately trying to find the slightest indication of disturbed snow. Just a telltale smudge a line left by the blade of a foot, a spot where the snow had been knocked off the clumps of brush. He crouched and methodically began to scan the white crystal, but all he saw was the thin, unmolested blanket of white glaze. He went back and observed again where the tracks had quit. It was as if their maker had been pulled up into thin air. After a long period of scanning the schoolhouse and the ridge lines and seeing nothing, he gave up and made a tense retreat back down the hill. That evening, Carson stared into the fire he'd made in the cast-iron stove in his kitchen. Some unmeticulous renovations had gotten rid of the old kitchen sink and laid deplorable yellowed linoleum over the floors, but the old stove remained near its modern electric counterpart. A hamburger wrapped in tinfoil along with diced onions and carrots sizzled and hissed in the reddening coals. 
The falling snow had turned to a thin, cold rain by the late morning and dissolved the snow. Carson spent the drizzling afternoon searching the premises with that familiar old battle rattle shaking his frame, darting from building to building all day, carefully inspecting each structure for broken locks, smashed windows, any breach that might have given entrance to his fugitive. But he found nothing. There were no more footprints either, which was a relief, but as the snow melted like sugar under the rain, there was no guarantee it meant the visitor was gone. Carson was exhausted as he stared into the embers of his fire. A bayonet hung from his belt. For lack of a rifle, he dug it from his duffel bag and carried it with him all day on the search for the barefoot figure. It had a little white sticker attached to its olive drab scabbard, reading, 100% organic and fair trade. He had noticed the incongruous little square someone had placed on his scabbard one hot afternoon while eating an MRE in Iraq. Peace and love, Private Grady whispered in the heat as he saw Carson look up from the sticker in confusion. Screw you. Carson hissed back through a grin, amid the low thud of distant artillery. He tried not to, but he found himself wondering again what had happened to Private Grady, the oddball who put that sticker from a clump of organic fair trade bananas on Carson's bayonet sheath, the one he had actually thought of as a friend until the worst day of their lives. Trying to busy away the thoughts, Carson stirred the embers with the long tip of his bayonet, and wondered absently if tinfoil dinners were ever a staple of the miners and other assorted old-time folks who lived in this place. It suddenly felt good to think about them again. This pseudo-family of nether folk he spent most of his time pondering. He made a mental note to scour the defunct general store's collection of books he'd noticed for a cookbook, figure out what they ate back then as they stared into the dying flames of their evening fires. He finally picked up his camera that had gone untouched after finding the footprints and USB'd it into his neglected laptop on the kitchen table. He watched the little blue bar turn and twist as his photos loaded. Carson ran his hand over the dust on the screen and smelled the acrid bite of cordite left over from the old ghostly warhorse clanking its armor somewhere in a dark closet, banging against its latch. At least the clamor was dying, audible, but not quite as loud. The images popped on the screen, snow streaking like white-tailed comets onto the winding little main street framed by slumping old storefronts, blades of tan grass glazed with a white layer of ice like tempura, an old miner shack in shallow depth of field in the distance. Carson scrolled to the reflection of himself that he had taken in the window of the saloon that morning. A woman with skin the color of alabaster stood next to him in a long black dress. There was blood coming from her nose, and her exhausted eyes were rimmed with tears and a frightened expression. One of them was yellow from having been blackened. Some of her black hair was up in complicated ways, but strands of it now hung down on her sunken cheeks, flecked with snow. Her white, bare feet shone bright in the dull light of the storm. I hope you're enjoying In the Shadow of the Ratliff Hotel. My first novel, The Burka Cave, was published last summer, and I put its Amazon link down below if you're interested. And we'll have more to you soon.